Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you, as always, for giving us your listening time. This is episode number 83 of The Next Track. As regular listeners to this podcast know, we frequently like to talk to guests who uh, help us better understand how the music we listen to is made. Well, when composers make music these days, composers and arrangers and copyists, they use what's called score writer software or music notation software. Daniel Spreadbury is the product manager for scoring for the score writer application called Dorico from Steinberg, which, as you may know, is a well-known music software company. And Daniel Spreadbury joins us today. Daniel, it's great to meet you and it's great to have you on the show. Thanks very much for having me. Daniel, you were involved in the original Sibelius scoring app some time ago, weren't you? Yeah, that's right. I, I actually found myself um, working on Sibelius pretty much after I graduated from my music degree. Um, I was working as a, as a singer at the time. I got my music degree and then I was I became a singer. And to, uh, uh, to cut a long story short, I was a starving singer because singers don't make a huge amount of money. And the organist at the cathedral where I was singing um, happened to get an email saying, hey, they're looking for some people at Sibelius. And I applied actually for a copywriting job, ended up getting um, a technical support job. And that was 20 years ago. And I've been working on scoring software ever since. Did you have any computing experience when you got this job? Well, I'd always been interested in computing. My my older brother, I'm kind of of the generation where home computers uh, were just really starting to become commonplace in the home. So when I was about four, my older brother, who's eight or nine years nine years older than me, he uh, he got a Commodore PET, which was a pretty you know high tech bit of kit in 1980, um, and he he immediately got really good at programming. And you know he would program games and things for for me and my um, younger brothers and sisters to play, uh, and you know, just over over many years, I kind of got interested in technology. And it was a really remarkable thing that, you know, having been very kind of arty and all my brothers and sisters are very sciencey, uh, I nevertheless really have a very keen interest in technology. And it was kind of miraculous, really, to fall into uh, working at Sibelius, which married my my two most sort of passionate interests in life, you know, music and technology. So it really was perfect. I couldn't have planned it any better. And I certainly didn't plan it at all. Was Sibelius developed in the UK? Absolutely. Yeah. So the company was founded by um, a pair of twin brothers called Ben and Jonathan Finn, who um, who had started working on it while they were still at school. Um, and they both basically gave up their PhDs. One was doing a PhD, the other doing a DPhil because they were at Oxford and Cambridge. They kind of went up through school together and then they went to Oxford and Cambridge separately. And uh, they gave up on their doctorate work to to found Sibelius in 1993. And the first version of Sibelius was for the Acorn computers, which were very big here in the UK, but not really anywhere else in the world. And of course, funnily enough, the successor to all the Acorn computers that now everybody has in their pocket today is the ARM processor. That's um, right. Because that was all yep. grown out of the same uh, British technology scene. So yeah, they founded the company in 93 and they, they marketed the Acorn version for about five or six years. Um, and I joined the company just literally a couple of months after the first Windows version of Sibelius came out and before the Mac version came out in, in 99. Um, and it was it was a really exciting time. You know, the company was growing fast, uh, having the Windows and then the Mac versions really opened up new markets. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a great place to work. And, you know, most of us who are working on Dorico now uh, were the people who Ben and Jonathan hired to work on Sibelius around that time. You know, several of my colleagues have been uh, working together with me uh, for, yeah, like I say, nearly nearly 20 years now. 
But this is a different company, right? Because Sibelius is now owned by Avid. That's right. So, so Ben and Jonathan um, were were looking for a while to uh, to kind of do other things. You know, by the time they actually sold Sibelius to Avid in two thousand and six, they'd been working on it pretty much for twenty years. Um, obviously, only only ten of those or thirteen of those years with a with an actual sort of company, and before that, it was more like their sort of hobby or perhaps even their obsession. Um, and yeah, they had been looking for a while to to kind of go off and do other things, and they also wanted to find a company that could take Sibelius on to a new stage of growth. And at the time, it was actually Digidesign rather than Avid, because back then, um, the different companies that were owned by Avid were kind of operated more or less separately. And Digidesign, of course, makers of Pro Tools and, you know, a great legacy of, of technological technological innovation. Um, they wanted our scoring technology. They wanted our reach into education. Um, so it really seemed like a good fit at the time. And, and for a while, I think it was. But Avid uh, did go through, um, and, and perhaps arguably is still going through, some sort of slings and arrows of uh, corporate uh, fortune, you know, how these things can be rather turbulent. And after about three years after the acquisition happened, um, you know, they, they basically decided to uh, kind of realign the company in a fairly aggressive way um, that resulted in a lot of, you know, layoffs and restructurings and all these sorts of things. And, you know, m many of us on the, on the team survived each of those uh, rounds for quite a few times uh, but eventually in the summer of 2012 uh, finally the axe fell on us as well and our office in london was was closed and the plan at the time was to then move the uh, technology you know the development of sibelius uh, offshore uh, which was something that avid was doing a lot of at the time i think they've probably moved a lot of their development back onshore now you know how these things go it's kind of it ebbs and it flows but at the time that was what they wanted to do and so yeah we were those of us who were left in the sibelius team were given the chance to seek employment elsewhere shall we say and very fortunately for us um, Steinberg who are another great company with you know a great uh, legacy of technological innovation really you know Cubase of course is now best part of 30 years old Steinberg itself is I think now 34 years old maybe 35 years old um, and you know invented not only things like the first sequencer like Cubase on the Atari ST but also VST technology that people use so all of the all the music that we hear these days that is producing using all of these incredible sounds that are either synthesized by the computer or recordings of sampled sounds and things all of those really have come about because of technology like VST which Steinberg invented in the 90s so it was really, um, and it's funny, one of my colleagues, James, said that, you know, there were probably really only two companies that he would ever want to work for. One was Sibelius and the other was Steinberg. And so for us to then get picked up by Steinberg, whose products many of us already used, uh, it was really uh, just an incredible turnaround for us and, and for the whole team. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for Sibelius, and, and every once in a while I like to see these little nostalgic sentences such as the program was released to the public in April 1993 on 3.5 inch floppy disk. It required considerably less than one megabyte of memory. It needed only 548k for a 33 page symphonic score for example. Those things have changed a lot, haven't they? They surely have. Yeah, I mean, Jonathan was really a whiz when it came to all of the original Sibelius code was written in assembler on on the um, Acorn Risk PC architecture, and you know they were they would absolutely sweat over every single byte in terms of packing the data in to make it ever more efficient because you know we didn't have these mega powerful computers and fast connections you know one of the things that we used to say early in Sibelius for Windows is life is like all of Bach's works 
would have fit comfortably on a floppy disk, you know, on a 1.4 megabyte floppy disk uh, with plenty of room to spare, to be honest, you know. (laughs) And uh, and that was really testament to the uh, ingeniousness of having to come up with these incredibly efficient solutions for making hardware that, you know, today, I'm sure that the iPhones we have in our pockets today are orders of magnitude more powerful even than the wrist pcs that ben and jay were working on in the 90s um and yes as you say things have most definitely changed in that regard in the early days this software was basically designed to make rough scores rough sheet music for people to use but now particularly the app that you're working on dorico you you talk about it as being a high level engraving app the difference is really almost night and day between these rough bitmapped notes that you would have gotten 20 years ago and the quality that you get today. Before we discuss exactly what the scoring software does, how how important is this visual aspect to the people who use this software? And how much attention have you paid to that element of printing it so well, as opposed to all the rest, again, that we'll talk about in a few minutes? Yeah, I think it's actually hard to overstate how important it is uh, to musicians. I think it's interesting because music notation is this incredibly sophisticated visual language. It's a two-dimensional visual language because obviously horizontal sort of stuff like reading text left to right, that's time. Um, And then the vertical aspect not only indicates pitch, but also it indicates Uh, synchronicity, what things are actually happening at the same time, or what the spatial relationship, the time and spatial relationship of of different events are to each other. So actually how the music is laid out on the page is incredibly important to how musicians actually read it. Um, And certainly when I was was growing up, um, you know, I'm not old, but I'm old enough that when I was growing up, all the music I was playing in school, when I was learning my cello, when I was learning piano, was not produced on the computer. It was produced by human beings using manual methods like engraving onto plates of metal where they literally had punches like little chisels and they would hammer the symbols into the into the metal in reverse which made it even more incredible uh, because of course everything had to be done in reverse image and then uh, it would be printed lithographically afterwards or it was stenciled halston here in the uk would use um, they would do double size stenciling so you'd have you know a treble clef would require two stencils and you'd have to carefully brush the ink through the stencil and again that all had to be planned out by hand or it would be sent off to be to be hand copied overseas by people who had the most incredibly precise penmanship that meant that every note had would somehow be exactly the same shape. I don't know if you've ever tried to write music, but all through my undergraduate uh, life, I was writing music by hand, didn't do it on the computer, and my penmanship is dreadful. And some of these things that you would see, you would not believe that they were done by hand. But there is a certain look to music that's been prepared by humans, whichever method it is that's been used, whether it's a combination of lettering and stenciling, or whether it's engraving, or, or whether it's even autography, you can still see a certain amount of human warmth and Im- almost sort of imperfections in the way that it's done. But when it's done really, really well, musicians can just read it without really knowing why everything just kind of flows. And I think that's something that computer engraving, uh, not because the people who worked on tools like Finale or Sibelius or the previous generation of tools didn't recognize it as important, but rather that it's actually very difficult to kind of algorithmically work out what are the details that make a particular phrase or a particular tune or a particular rhythm easier or more difficult to read. Um, And so we spent a huge amount of time not really studying 
certainly not what we had done previously in Sibelius and not what other computer programs do, which, when you think about it, are really a blip in this history of printed music that stretches back to the beginning of the of the 16th century. You know, Petrucci was around in about 1500. That was when, really, music started being mass-printed, um, not very long after Gutenberg had come up with the, with the printing press more generally. So we've got this effectively 500-year tradition of printed music and the evolution of all of these conventions. And then computer engraving comes along in really the last 20, 30 years tops, really. Finale came out in the late 80s and really the first program that, you know, you could have your Mac SE2 on your desk and you could do part extraction and it would take all night, but you could do it, you know. Uh, and that was obviously a lot a lot quicker and cheaper than, um, even though Macs and Finale were both very expensive in those days, still a lot cheaper than getting somebody to do that by hand for you. But the thing was that what you got out at the other end of it didn't look, as you say, it didn't look as good as something done by a human being. So we ignored all of that stuff. And our goal was to get back to the kind of music that we grew up playing, the kind of music that, um, you know, that professional musicians expect to see. And I think that the role of software developers like us is actually to uphold that tradition, to maintain that tradition um, and not to allow what's expedient from a development point of view to influence what we actually end up doing. And so we've tried very, very hard to always go back to first principles and really think about how is something really going to um, to work for the musician rather than, you know, oh, we could cut a corner here or there and we could implement this more quickly if we just sort of pretend this detail doesn't exist. If you look back at old scores that were written by hand, I mean, I've seen some of Bach's scores. The musicians had no problem playing them at all. Are musicians just spoiled now that they're used to working from engraved scores and 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 better and better quality? That's a, that's a great point. Yes, of course. You know, if you if you sat down and played to a violin pass or a continuo part that had been copied out by Papa Bach himself, you certainly wouldn't complain about it at the time. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, that is that is a great point. I think the I think the thing is that these days, and of course it was true in Bach's day as well, but I think we have a certain expectation um, not only as uh, musicians ourselves, but also as the audience, that we're going to get a certain fluency of performance, a certain you know uh, quality of expression, and all these things. And particularly these days, when orchestras are rehearsing new music, they might only get a single rehearsal to to do a major new work before it's performed for the first time. You know, it's nice to think that they would sit down with your you know 15 minute overture or whatever, and they would practice it for weeks and weeks before the premiere. But truth is, they probably only had time to play it maybe the day before or the day of the concert. So so what's really important is that in order to maintain these high levels of performance that we all expect, and this is not in any way to demean the skills of these musicians who are incredibly talented and accomplished musicians, but everything you can do to give them the best chance of playing your music and it communicating to them what you want it to communicate so that they can then communicate that to the audience with as few slip-ups, as few mistakes, as few hands or bows going up in rehearsal and saying, excuse me, do you really, you know, this rhythm, is that right? Or is this note right? I think those are the things that, that can actually make or break a piece in rehearsal. Yeah, I was just thinking that music scores all look the same. And by that, I mean that all the notes have exactly the same shape. I, I know that on the product page for your software, which we'll link to in the show notes, you say that you have a 3000 plus symbol music font. When did that font become the standard music font? I'm sure that in the early days of engraving, there were different types of font. I know that, I, I think if you look at the old manuscripts by William Byrd, they have like squarish 
notes and and I've seen German manuscripts where they're more like lines instead of ovals. When was this standardized? And is it entirely standardized, at least for Western music? I think it isn't really entirely standardized, to be honest. I think that, you know, certainly the the sort of the quarter note or crotchet note head being sort of slightly oval and slightly tilted, almost as if it's sort of leaning over to the left a little bit. That has been the case for certainly for 200, 300 nearly years, I would say. But yes, you can certainly look back at the music of the Renaissance and you can look back um, at, you know, particular idioms in, for example, German organ tablature, which which actually uses stuff closer to, well, I mean, it is actually using letters rather than note heads and lute tablets is the same, it uses letters. So there has been a tremendous variation in in notational systems, even within Western music. But yes, I think you're right. Once we kind of got through the Renaissance and we were doing away with prolations and we were coming towards the more common time signatures and key signatures and so on, you know, of course, other extra musical factors like the development of instruments played into this, uh, you know, the well-tempered uh, clavier and so on is is another um, thing that uh, re- reflects a development happening in the time where instruments now with their with these measured temperament systems rather than each instrument being tuned in its own way. So I think there is kind of through particularly the 18th century um, a, an increased standardization in how uh, these things actually tend to look um, and. You know, certainly Western European music looks pretty much the way that, for example, the bravura font that I designed for Dorico um, looked by certainly by the middle of the 18th century. And, and it hasn't really changed a lot since then. But it is fascinating to go back and look at, you know, I think you mentioned white notation, for example, that sort of French croche blanche notation that was used yeah. through the through the medieval Renaissance period. And you can definitely see how the note values that were used in in those uh, scores kind of map onto the note values that we use today. And, um, you know, there is definitely a continuum. And of course, that continuum carries on today. You know, there are composers who are inventing new symbols all the time. And that's actually one of the challenges that we have is that we want to be able to support all of the kinds of uh, expression that a composer might want to use when they're preparing a score. And sometimes that, of course, involves them inventing their own symbols, their own notations. And that is actually a real challenge for software developers that we're always of necessity lagging behind what current practice is because um, like any kind of visual art form as it were you know if somebody innovates a new symbol it might be it might catch on it might be that everybody starts using it or it might be that it sort of dies a death and nobody other than that one composer uses it so you know we inevitably have to make decisions about what we can and can't support in the software Um, and so we have to kind of use really what we're seeing in the printed literature as a kind of lagging indicator of where the current state of the art in in music notation is. Um, And and I think, you know, that, as I say, that is a challenge because there will be composers who are looking to programs like Dorico to allow them to express themselves in a way that haven't haven't been done before. But when you're working in this very complex two-dimensional visual language, actually providing sufficient flexibility that you can do things that you couldn't anticipate when you were designing the software is actually a real is actually a real problem do any composers use emoji yet <laughs> well lily who writes our documentation um caused a minor 
a minor sort of sensation on Twitter a few weeks ago when she realized that you can, in fact, use emoji in Dorico. If ah, you want to. <laughs> so you can indicate your dynamics with smiley faces. Exactly. Yes. I would I would see a contemporary composer wanting to do that. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we they do communicate things to us after all. So if yeah. you're using uh, arbitrary text instructions and we've got used to interpreting some pretty weird instructions that we see written to us in, in words in musical scores over the years, you know, perhaps the most famously Satie writing little notes to the pianist who's playing his pieces that you're not even, you know, you can't really perform them, but they're just really kind of meant to make you laugh almost. Um, you know, I think there's there's nothing too outlandish about the idea of communicating your intent using emoji, really. So let's talk about what the software does. And there's an interview with you on the Dorico website, and I'll link to this. And you say, Dorico is to music notation what the word processor is to the written word. It's more like having an experienced music copyist who work with you all the time to ensure that your musical ideas are communicated clearly, unambiguously, and in a way which can be read quickly and easily by a musician. I like that idea of a word processor, and, and I think I, I don't have a lot of experience with this. I do have a an app that can arrange music for guitar with standard score and tablature and, and chord signatures. But I think the most fascinating thing here is that you could start composing something, and if you don't like where you've put a phrase or a measure, you can copy it and paste it someplace else. How has this changed the way music is composed? Well, I think that is that's a huge development, really. I think that you know, I think it's it's sort of akin to what desktop publishing did for the production of uh, you know people doing their own magazine layouts and newspaper layouts and things. It's it's a great democratizing force being able to uh, effectively unlock this um, almost secret knowledge that you uh, that you have to learn through years of learning an instrument and then learning how to read and music theory and all these things. Um, it sort of unlocks that and makes it much, much easier to get started. Of course, it doesn't mean that um, the tool is going to, just like a word processor can't help you to write a good novel, um, you know, the ideas have still got to come from you, you've still got to choose the words, etc. If, if you've got that creative impulse, then the software can actually help you to work more efficiently and, and to get it out. So I think that it's probably true to say that because of the uh, wide availability of, of software like Dorico and also free ones that you can find, you know, these days you can even run in your browser on, on your phone or on your iPad or, or free ones that you can download, open source programs and so on. There's probably been more sheet music created in the last, you know, 20 years than in the preceding three centuries combined. I, I remember seeing a documentary about Philip Glass a few months ago. And at one point in the documentary, he was sitting at a piano and he was playing a bit and he had a pencil and he was writing on a score. And I, I was wondering with software like this, how much faster is it to make your score? Um, obviously, with Philip Glass, he could probably write an entire piece in an afternoon because you can just copy and paste the same thing over and over. But how much time would, let's just take, I don't know, a 10 minute piano piece, you know, for a single instrument. How much time would a composer save using software, either Dorico or anything else, as opposed to writing it out by hand? Because I assume also that they write it by hand the first time, then they have to make a clean copy afterwards. So there's a, a process to creating that score from its first sketches. Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. And of course, these days, some people do compose straight into the computer and they, they actually develop the idea in the software. So they can kind of do away with some of that 
um, developing the idea of fair copy on paper and then trans transposing it into the computer, as it were. But I think the, um, the the difference is enormous, to be honest, because the thing that's great about software is that it produces something that looks reasonably close to what a publisher would do um, pretty much when you just type the notes in. And Dorico gets way, way closer to that than any previous software. And in fact, I think Dorico is especially good at music for piano in particular, because piano is a complex instrument to write for because of all of the, you know, the voicing and the fact that, you know, you can play practically an entire musical texture with many different rhythms going on and so on and and presenting that in a way that's clear to the musicians so they can really kind of again sight read that down um is is actually one of the more time consuming aspects of preparing one of these scores so i mean i i don't know i was i, I know somebody who in new york who's actually produced a lot of parts for for example philip glass's um large-scale works his operas and things and you know the, these things are thousands of bars long so you'd be talking about having a team of people um, so firstly, the score has to be finished well in advance of the first rehearsal so that you can actually get the parts copied. Then you've got to have um, multiple copies of the score made and biked around or couriered to various people. Then you've got to have your people with all their paper and their pens and, you know, they can work all night uh, and they always often have to. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, you'd be talking about a period of, of certainly of, of a, you know, at least a week with multiple people in order to prepare the rehearsal materials for that by hand. And we're probably talking about a dozen people working solidly for a week to do it. Nowadays, of course, you can you can put that into the computer in, in probably a tenth of the time it would take to do it by hand. And then the part preparation time is probably a hundredth of what it was before because of all the automatic support that the program has to help you with things. So I guess it would be fair to say that if Bach had software like this, he would have finished that last fugue? <laughs> well, you know, you never know what, what, what it was that actually stopped him. But uh, yeah, I mean, he would, he would have just left more unfinished music, probably, of a different <laughs> Well, Schubert would have left more unfinished music because he's one of the kings of un unfinished works. What, what about performing now? And, and I know that this doesn't necessarily apply to Dorico as an application for creating music, but you're, you're, you're creating a PDF file or some other format from the score that you create in this app. And there are more and more musicians who are using iPads as scores, as electronic scores with a pedal. Uh, I even remember seeing Angela Hewitt earlier this year perform in Birmingham. And just before the, the concert started, someone came out with an iPad and set it up and put the pedal down. And I had never seen a musician of that caliber using an iPad. So how has that also changed music? The fact that you can whip out your score in this one app, you can create your PDF. And presumably a musician like that might have their own notes for fingering and dynamics and all that. How much has that changed the, the performance aspect of music? Yeah, I think it's increasingly becoming a, a big factor. I, I've seen quite a few people, particularly uh, small ensembles, little bands and things. It's very common these days to see them playing from iPads. Because, you know, if you have to, if you're Imagine you're a you're a, a gigging wedding band or something, you know, and you might have to have 200 songs at your fingertips, 200 songs where even if you're just carrying around like a real book with with the charts, that's still a big wadge of paper. And of course, the the nice thing is that with with software like you can run on your iPad, you can arrange your set list in advance, so you don't even have to worry about oh crap, is that one on page 150 or is it on page 225? You know, it can just be right there, like you say, when you either touch the screen or touch a pedal. Um, you can you can go straight to the next piece. So I think that the frontier really is whether we're going to see large scale ensembles using this kind of technology to aid themselves. Like a full orchestra, yeah. 
Exactly. And there have been some experiments uh, to do this. Um, you know, there was uh, Samsung sponsored, I think it was the Brussels Philharmonia to do this not so long ago with some tablets and things. But it, I think they actually only managed one piece out of their concert program. I think it was Bolero they played, uh, which is probably a piece that, to be honest, the performers could do without looking at the music anyway. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm performing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's a great. I mean, I'm not. I'm not knocking Bolero. It's a wonderful piece. You know, it's it's a really tremendous piece. But, uh, but it is also you know one that the musicians would know like the back of their hand anyway. And I think there are some challenges to to this happening. You know, on the one hand, you'd sort of look at it and you'd say, well, look, you know, in terms of this technology becoming completely commodified, it has. You know, you can buy uh, devices like an iPad for a few hundred dollars each, um, and in the in the sort of scheme of things that doesn't sort of seem like that much but i think the thing that's holding it back is um conservatism on one part you know i think musicians like their paper scores they like the ease of being able to reach out with a pencil and just do something Pen paper never goes wrong you know it there's no I, I was going to say i think it, i think it's fear of the, the clarinetist's ipad dying during the performance and all of a sudden he's lost exactly exactly and and you know also i think you have to think about well, what's the stage going to look like when you've got 80 people lit up by the glow of you know ipads in front of them is that going to is that going to really influence the way that we experience music as the audience you know uh and i think the from a technological point of view, all of the things that we're talking about are eminently possible. You know, we can network these things together. We can show the right music. We can even potentially have it following the conductor. Um, I know the uh, sort of French-Israeli startup Music actually have a demo of this. And in fact, that when I saw them at NAM in Los Angeles in January, they actually had like a Bluetooth baton uh, that you could actually use uh, to kind of, you know, I mean, actually, it was only for page turning rather than for actually counting what ah, you're beating. Okay. But nevertheless, the conductor wouldn't even have <clears> to touch, you know, they could have a large format display in front of them, be clutching this Bluetooth baton, just give the bulb in their hand a squeeze and the page turns. So I think there is definitely room for these sorts of assistive technologies to help transform performance but i think that the in the end what it comes down to is that um paper is so great it's so durable it's so changeable um it's so reliable you know you you have to basically set fire to it or stick it in water for it to really become impossible to use it doesn't have batteries it can't go wrong so i think that you know, there's there's quite a high bar for technology to really actually overtake paper. And um, I think where we see our role with uh, with what we're doing with Dorico is to, you know, to facilitate all of these different things. So, yes, you can take a PDF out of Dorico or you can print to paper, you know, and, and Dorico actually spent quite a lot of time actually making the print workflow of getting things onto paper as smooth as possible. Because when you're dealing with large scale works, which is where Dorico is actually pretty great in terms of, you know, we've got some amazing features for queuing, you know, the score layout's pretty much completely automatic all these things you know it's actually then you want to be able to get that stuff onto paper organize it and get it onto the stands as quickly as possible and of course that becomes even more important when you're dealing with things like you know recording sessions for films tv shows video games those sorts of things where you know they they need the paper and they need it now and probably you only have an hour to print it and get it on the stand well thank you very much dan you that was fascinating it, it's true that uh, as musical listeners and and the occasional amateur performers that we are. We don't really pay much attention to this, but it is interesting to see how much the technology has changed and it's only going to go further in the future, isn't it? 
I think you're right. I think it's um, it's good that we can take for granted that it's possible for people to produce the music that we that we either perform or listen to um, without it being either hugely expensive or hugely time consuming. That means that we can have more music, and and that can only be a good thing. So, hopefully, as we continue to develop Dorico, it can continue to play a role. Um, in in broadening access to music, in broadening um, the compositional activities of people, whether they're students, whether they're professionals, um, and I think that you know it's almost impossible to guess where we might be in another twenty years' time, but it'll be somebody else's problem by then rather than mine. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much, Daniel Spreadbury, for taking time to talk to us today. Yes, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. It is now time for us to present our next tracks. Kirk, what have you been listening to this week? This week I've been listening to shakuhachi music. I love the shakuhachi. It's this Japanese flute. You hold it the way you would hold, let's say, a clarinet or an oboe. It's made of bamboo, and you blow across a... How would I describe it? A a bit that's sort of shaved wedge shape, and you blow across it and you make a sound. It has five holes in it because the Japanese scale is generally pentatonic. And I just love the peace and the relaxing tone of this music. It's got this woody tone. It's obviously a woodwind instrument, but it's got this resonance, which is really attractive. And I've got a couple dozen albums of shakuhachi music. I've loved this music for a long time. And I'm going to pick one which is by Stan Richardson. It's called Shakuhachi Meditation Music. There is a school of shakuhachi music which is related to Zen Buddhism And it's not used while people are sitting and meditating, but it is meant to be played in a meditative way. This is a an album that's about two and a half hours long. It's on two CDs when if you buy it on plastic. I'll link to it on Apple Music. Some of these pieces are 10, 15, 18 minutes long. They they almost sound like improvisations, but I don't think they are. I don't know enough about the music. I've seen some of the scores for this music. In fact, I'll put a link in the show notes to an image of a score, and and you'll see how different it is from the type of score that we were just talking about. The scoring is very odd because it seems to be showing not only the notes, but the time in a different way than Western scoring does, and and there's probably dynamics and all sorts of things. In, in any case, it, it's a very strange music, but it's very, I don't want to say relaxing, it's its reposing. It's its the kind of music that can make you think. So my next track this week is Shakuhachi Meditation Music by Stan Richardson. Doug? Uh, I have two 10cc CDs. One is 10cc's Greatest Hits, and the other one is Sheet Music. Yes, the topic of today's program did suggest that to me. Um, and I haven't gone back and listened to it in a while. I've been complaining over the past couple of months about music that I can't listen to and I go back because uh, I've been so burned out on it on radio. Well, this is 10CC is an example of a band that I am not burned out on. I really do like them. I've I've been listening to the Greatest Hits CD for quite some time. And this episode we've been doing on sheet music reminded me of the album, so I dug it out and I'm going to listen to it. I used to listen to this quite frequently. It's one of the, um, the most consistent uh, 10cc albums, and I think the band liked it too. This is their second album, and they were riding pretty high on the success of their first album, and I think they had the, the idea and the smarts to go in while they had the enthusiasm and, and record some exciting and, and fun songs. This is the album that has the Wall Street Shuffle and Silly Love on it, both of which were minor to reasonable hits in the United States and the UK. But there's a lot of other good stuff on it too, and there's an interesting story about how they recorded this album. While they were recording during the day, Paul McCartney was doing some production project in the evening, and they had said that 
some of Paul McCartney had rubbed off on them, and there's definitely something Beatlesque about a lot of their arrangements. But of course, 10CC tends to go uh, a, a little bit over the top with a lot of their arrangements, and their very exciting and zany arrangements are 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 very very much a part of this album. I think that's one of the reasons I like it. Some critics have compared uh, this 10CC album to some Frank Zappa music, believe it or not, because of the, the level of the complexity and the interesting vocal and instrumental things that they do. So that's what I'll be listening to. 10CC, sheet music, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.